just heard, I'm assuming, what is a theme song that um, I will be putting together at some point in the next few days. Uh, this is Coax <laughs> Baseball. My name is Travis Laver, and I'm joined by... Hello, my name is Scott Brady. And uh, we're two nerds who like baseball a lot, and, uh, and we're going to... We, we both really like 90s and 2000s baseball. We like current baseball, too. All the uh, baseball. And all the, all the baseball. Literally all of it, but we have a specific knowledge slash nostalgic um, fondness for 90s and 2000s baseball, and so we've decided, in light of a wonderful YouTube channel, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, being put up on YouTube, uh, that uh, we're going to recap some old games each episode, a different game that we find that we like, or it doesn't even have to be one that we like, we just pick it and start watching it, uh, and we'll recap the game and talk about cool stuff. So yeah, um, Scott, do you want to elaborate on that at all? Uh, I mean, you pretty much hit all the points. Um, we'll probably go off into tangents here and there, depending on you know who's in the lineup for each game, or you know what may have been going on that season in baseball. Uh, you know, maybe a couple of little current event things with the state of the world at the beginning, but mostly with the focus on the baseball. Um, and yeah, uh, we're both pretty knowledgeable and can really kind of get into the minutia of what was going on with each game and the narrative surrounding that particular season even. And it should be a pretty fun uh, look back at, you know, what, what's happened and how that potentially would influence things down the road as well. Yeah, and I think like it's it's a it's an interesting time in baseball because it's sort of pre moneyball slash yes. during the first parts of Moneyball and like you and I are both sort of stat head kind of guys uh we like to be on the vanguard of baseball knowledge mm-hmm. here in 2023 but uh you know we're this was not that time yet and no. so when we're listening to the announcers or we're watching the game it is a very very different game and so i think that we can learn a lot about what has happened with baseball in the last 20 30 years by watching these games yeah that's also cool yep and it's it's interesting because the actual games themselves just like and this is something we can get into in more detail coming up here but like just watching the way the game actually progresses you know the kind of calls that are made by you know whether it's the umps or different plays managers might put on like it's it's obviously the same game that's being played today but the style of play or the meta is really different and it's it's interesting because it you know we're looking back you know 20, 25, 30 years with most of these games we're going to be looking at, which really in the grand scheme of things isn't that long ago, but it, the meta has just changed so much, uh, as you said, post-Moneyball. And then especially, I feel, in you know, depending on how, you know, if we do some more modern games, like in the last decade in particularly, I think there's really been a shift in some areas. So it's it's interesting to go back further than that and just see how different things were. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Statcast revolution has been the next thing, Huge. right? That is, and, it, and it, yeah, it's just it strikes me as being like a, a sweet spot in a way because there's we we found a website called This Is Where You Find Baseball, and we will leave a link to that wonderful person's channel. They've uploaded thousands of games from this era, sort of before, literally is, because, uploading new games every day. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> like s- several every day. Uh-huh. So, um, so the way it works, if, if you're unfamiliar, uh, so basically, I think it's since 2017. I think every game is on MLB TV if you have a subscription, but between 2008 or nine and 2017 something around there every game is on youtube yes, already you can find free. those mm-hmm. yeah and they're hd 
from Major League Baseball, real good quality, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's all post HD broadcast. But anything yeah. before that is not miss. officially on YouTube. You have to find, you know, in this case, because these are what's crazy about these, these are all VHS rips that this yeah. guy has edited out commercials for, which is Every insane to think about Every the, single one of them. the time it would take to do that. But yeah. Um, I stumbled upon this, I think it was like January 2nd or something, which is right around the time that I start getting real antsy for baseball. I don't know how your baseball calendar works in yeah, your own personal no, life, but for me, like that spot between January and April before the season starts mm -hmm. is when I am the most ready. I am like looking at stats, I'm getting into the new season, I'm listening to previews, I'm like everything baseball yeah. for a couple months yeah that's and that's so, when i'm i'm trying to fill the void i'm playing exactly you know whether it's the show or if i'm being a degenerate and playing i don't know rbi 94 or mvp 2005 or you know because i <laughs> am i i have a mental illness and can't help myself <laughs> but, <laughs> but you, you know. using the word meta earlier i think gave everybody all the uh edic <laughs> all the uh information yeah, exactly about your video gaming <laughs> yes yeah, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, and we both live in northern climates. We'll get into that when we talk about who we are as people in a minute. But uh, we both live in quite nor northern climates. So as I look out my window right now in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, it has been raining now for like five straight days mm -hmm. and uh, I'm depressed. So I need baseball and finding this web this uh, channel, uh, this is where you find baseball has been just like a light in the darkness. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I'm no, watching awesome. games every day. I'm like getting like nostalgic. I'm looking up the players as they're coming up to the plate. And what's what I love about it is that like you can find old famous games, like perfect games, big mm -hmm. playoff games. You can find those. These are just random games. They're not, there's nothing yeah. special about them. And I love that because like mm -hmm. baseball to me is a sport of ubiquity. It's always around. It's always on. It's meant to be a background thing. It's like the background it. noise of summer. Exactly, yeah. and and like it's not like I don't want to see an exciting, great game every single time. I right. want to see baseball, and mm -hmm. it could be a twenty, you know, twenty-one to nothing game. It can be a three-two thriller. It can be a random game in July that no one has thought about since. Uh, but like, that's what I like, and so yes. these are just random games. They're not. There's nothing special about them whatsoever. Um, there might be like you might watch a no hitter. I don't know. I haven't found one yet. I'm sure that they exist on on this channel somewhere just by the you know law of averages. But mm -hmm. um, but so far it's just been like like just a random game. Before we get into who we are, I just want to say that we are doing the Baltimore Orioles and Toronto Blue Jays on Sunday Night Baseball um, from June 24th, 1994. Uh, that's the first episode we're gonna do. Um, We'll put a link in the notes. So if you want to go right now and watch that game before you listen to the rest of this episode, uh, that you know be great if you want to do that. So we'll leave a link in the show notes uh, that takes you right to the game, and you can go watch it in its entirety. I think it's an uh, an hour and fifty four minutes once yeah, all the commercials right under are two hours. Yeah, so it's not too bad. Put it on in the background, um, and then come back and listen to this if you want. Uh, but before we get into the actual game, uh, who are you, Scott Brady? And uh, how did you come to baseball? Yeah, so I was born in, born and raised, I should say, in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Or I should say, I was I was born in Cleveland, grew up in the Medina area, um, which is like 30, 40 minutes outside of Cleveland. A little bit closer to Akron than Cleveland, but same area. Um, my I'm LeBron James. Yes. Yeah, I know. That's all we're known for that and <laughs> Rivers That Are on Fire, which is a totally relevant and, you know, up to date 
joke. <laughs> very, very timely. Uh, and also Balloon Mageddon, which we'll get into that another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so my family had been in the area for some time before that. Uh, my grandmother was a teenager. Uh, she was 13 in 1948 when the Cleveland baseball team uh, last won the World Series. Um if I recall, she had told me at one point that the cost of uh, bleacher seats that year were like 36 cents or something absurd. <laughs> um, but yeah, she was a diehard fan and absolutely loved her Cleveland baseball team and uh, passed that on to my dad, who passed it on to me. And then I got further encouragement from her as well. Um, my own fandom has kind of took a weird winding route because I had... Um, I was, like, really, really into it when I was a little kid. Um, I was born in 1992, so I would have been a toddler, basically, when they went to the World Series in 95. Uh, still not that much older in 97. And then kind of in the late 90s and, like, early 2000s, like, I, the first team I really remember is probably that 2001 team, which was kind of a mix of the remnants of those 90s teams. Uh, you know, Jim Tomey, Kenny Lofton, Omar Vizquel, uh, as well as uh, other pieces they had added that year. It was kind of the last ride for that group. They had added, like, Juan Gonzalez um, hmm. and, like, Ellis Burks and Marty Cordova. Uh, those some, those kind of remember a, some guys. Yeah, an odd <laughs> mismatch of players. And they were okay that year, but they got beat by the 116-win uh, uh, Seattle Mariners that season um, who then of course got smoked by the Yankees in the CS because of course they did um, but yeah after that I kind of fell out of love with baseball for a while um, when Jim Tomey signed with Philadelphia I kind of decided I'd had enough because he was my favorite player um, and a lot of that other core had been liquidated by that point as well my other favorite player Kenny Lofton uh, would have left the team the year before that um, so yeah, I just kind of fell out of touch with the sport for about a decade. Um, I kind of came back for a little bit during 2007 when they made their run to the CS against the Red Sox. And yeah, then that was like a weird year where they were, they were not supposed to be good, right? And then it all was, of a sudden they were, they were good again. That, that whole period was really strange for them because they had some good on paper teams from like. 2004 through like 2009 with probably 05 through 08 being the best of that but they always had a bad bullpen every year except for 2007 which that was then the one year they did make a deep playoff run because like in in 05 when the white Sox went to the world series like cleveland had a better pie fag but if you remember that white Sox team had a really good rotation and a really good bullpen um, and that kind of mm. made all the difference, but we'll we can get more into that at another time if we talk about some of oh, those yeah. later Cleveland teams. I'm so sure. I don't I'm get... sure we'll watch games. Yeah, that are at that time. We plan on doing this whether people listen to it or not. Yes. So uh, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, I um, I got back into it uh, when I was in college. I went to a game with my grandma and my parents in 2013 when they were making their wild card run, and. Um, I remember we had we had like really really good seats. Like my dad got had gotten seats like a few rows back from the uh, the third base dugout. 
So you could really see like how hard the pitcher was throwing, and like you could see the yeah. movement on the pitches and everything. And I remember uh, Danny Salazar had actually started that game, and it hmm. was not his first start. It was only like his second or third start. And when he first came up, he was throwing absolute gas, like would touch a hundred with regularity. And at this point in time, this was before like everyone was throwing hard like that. Like, yeah. Velo had definitely started to trend up by that point, but it still isn't anything like you see right now where everyone can throw 100-plus and also has stupid breaking stuff. Yeah, um, the 94-mile-an-hour the sliders. Right, exactly. <laughs> so it was just it was really cool to be able to see how hard he was throwing up close, and I just I really enjoyed the experience and got into it. Um, I remember I went home and, like, broke out all my old baseball cards that I had from when I was a kid, and just I couldn't get enough of it i was watching broadcasts i was playing video games i was buying new cards you know i was talking to anyone about it who would listen um i eventually found my way to bref and to fan graphs and you know figured out how sabermetrics worked and what all that meant and it all you know mm -hmm. made sense to me and i got very into the weeds with that and since then it's just kind of been further ingraining myself with everything and meeting other people like you who were very into baseball the way I was and absorbed it in that same statistically bent mindset. Um, you know, going back to Cleveland specifically, it's kind of been an odd couple of years for the franchise, you know, coming to terms with their whole, uh, you know, I'll say it because it is what it is, racist history, frankly, uh, with the name mm -hmm. and with Chief Wahoo and that whole rigmarole which again we can get more into that later um but yeah. they've embraced their new identity as the guardians and in their first season as them they were very good and it was very fun to see they have paid jose ramirez who presumably will be around long term now which is cool because they've never which surprised me really as a blue jays fan well i mean you wanted him in your lineup which you... <laughs> yeah they they almost maybe got him a couple times. I don't know. If we'll Gabriel, never know for if sure. If Gabriel Moreno had been available at the time, yeah, might, but we might be talking about Jose Ramirez, the Blue Jay. Yeah, but uh, I'm very thankful. I am right now looking at my shelf that has uh, multiple Jose Ramirez Guardians bobbleheads on them, and it's great that he's going to be around long term. And the f uh, future for the franchise looks great. The farm is loaded right now. They have lots of young, fun interesting players whether it's steven kwan or oscar gonzalez or aaron savale or shane bieber or some of their super mm -hmm. prospects like george valera or gavin williams or tanner bybee or daniel espino it's it, it it looks like a really bright future they spent some money this offseason finally so that's cool too um so i'm i'm very excited to what they do next uh, yeah. but yeah, it's a fun, uh, it's a fun front office, fun front office, uh, very yes, smart front office. Very good and, front and obviously office. there's a, a connection there with the blue Jays as well, Yes, uh, which we'll get into, but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. We, it's funny how we have, I don't know, I don't know if we have similar ways of getting into baseball, but, uh, I think we both sort of entered in it around the similar age. I'm a little older than you. I'm 38. So, um, by the decade, way, this is we, we're 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 gonna try to keep these to be an hour long, but I think the first one's likely gonna be longer because yes. we're doing this and we won't be doing this in subsequent episodes. Um, so, uh, my baseball fandom, like I say, I'm eight years older than you. Started about eight years before yours did. So uh, I was uh, I grew up in a small town called Newcastle, Ontario, uh, in Canada. It's about an hour east of Toronto. Uh, so I grew up a massive 
uh, Toronto sports fan, initially hockey, which probably wouldn't surprise anybody, Mm -hmm. uh, being that I'm Canadian, big Maple Leafs fan. Um, But also, I didn't connect with hockey as a game because I'm not sort of the typical alpha male uh, that, uh, that, that tends to be attracted to sort of the hockey culture in Canada, which is sure. its own very problematic thing. Um, but I did absolutely love playing baseball. Uh, as soon as I like, picked up a bat and, mm-hmm. and learned how to throw, which was at a very young age, I don't even remember learning how to throw. I just remember knowing how to do it. Uh, I was in love with the game instantly. And, uh, baseball cards was kind of my entry point to knowing the game. And my dad would just take me to the Pickering flea market and, uh, he would give me, you know, like, complete sets of you know donruss 91 fleer 91 tops upper deck whatever was there he would just grab them he would give them to me and i'd spend the rest of the day just looking at every single card memorizing everything every single statistic Mm -hmm. organizing them in a bunch of different ways creating my own little games with them uh doing all that and i I got really into it and uh obviously i became a blue jays fan because that was the team that was close and um in 1991 my dad took me to my first game and I should have it up. I should have the... Maybe we'll try to find it on this on this channel. It'd be amazing if we could. But uh, it's easy to find because Roberto Alomar hit two home runs in that game. And I think he only did that once or twice in that season. Um, and and so immediately Roberto Alomar became my favorite player. And uh, the, the Blue Jays became cemented as the only thing I cared about, basically. Mm-hmm. And obviously we can talk about how disappointing it was for me to learn of Roberto Alomar's transgressions uh, later in life. But... Uh, uh, but at the time, him and Joe Carter and Devon White and, you know, uh, like all those players, they sort of define my childhood. And, and like you, uh, you got into the to the Clevelands right at a time when they were at least coming off of a lot of good seasons. Yes. I got into it in 1991, which if you're familiar with baseball history, pretty good time to be a Blue Jays fan. So uh, mm-hmm. they won the American League East that year and lost to the Twins in the ALCS and then the very the next two years won the World Series, and I have very fond memories of both World Series. I was jumping up and down in my living room like Joe Carter when he hit that home run in 1993. Uh, it was is still a defining core memory. And I played baseball for years. I played baseball into adulthood. Um, some pretty high-level rep teams in Ontario. I actually played in the same league as Joey Votto and Russell Martin at times. He was in Montreal, so he was in a slightly different league, but we played in tournaments together. Uh, Scott Thorman, I don't know if you remember him, he was a big-time prospect. Uh, a lot of those sort of like first wave of big-time Canadian prospects mm-hmm. that came up in the in the early 2000s, uh, I probably played against them and got my ass handed to me by them because I wasn't very good. Uh, actually, Joey Votto hit a home run off of me. Huh? Uh, don't remember what year that would have been, but I was 16, so probably yeah, That's 19. a fun claim to fame. Yeah, probably 2000, 2001, something like that. Uh Hit a home run about 425 feet to dead center field off of my 79 mile an hour fastball. So that's, uh, unsurprising. I didn't. Uh, I didn't uh, play any professional baseball. Weird. It's weird how that happens. Yeah. Um, and Votto at that time is weird because he wasn't very good either. He was like, uh, like he was. He was very good. He was excellent, but he wasn't sort of considered one of the top baseball prospects well, in the country. When he was when he was in the red system, wasn't Jay Bruce ranked higher than him? When they oh, were yeah. both coming up, if I remember right, yeah, he was, and also Votto. So like Votto was overshadowed a lot by Scott Thorman or Scott Thurman, Scott Thorman, 
uh, from the Niagara region in Ontario, and he went on to be drafted by the Braves, I think, and was a much bigger prospect. And obviously, you know who Joey Votto is, and you might not know who Scott Thorman is. Yeah, I've never heard of of... Scott Thorman, so I think (laughs) that tells you all you need to know. I believe he did play in the major leagues. I don't want to look it up right now, but I believe he did. Um, But uh, not very long or or very well. But uh, yeah, then as a as an adult, I went to the University of Windsor in Windsor, Ontario, which, if you for you geographically inclined folks, is directly across the border from Detroit. And so uh, I still was a Blue Jays fan through and through, but I went to a lot more Tigers games mm-hmm. than I did Blue Jays games for uh, the next two decades. Basically, I only moved away from Windsor last year to Halifax. Uh, so that's where I spent most of my my baseball time and i saw many 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 tigers games including speaking of jim tomei uh, i saw jim tomei's 599th and 600th home run in the same really game. you uh, were at the yeah, game for it's that? at comerica i was at, it was in the right field bleachers and he didn't hit a home run hit both yeah they were oppo center field and left field <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i was really annoyed by that because i was like oh yeah we're sitting in the right field bleachers and jim tomei is sitting at 598 maybe he'll get two tonight maybe we'll catch number 600 but and he did get the two but uh, neither of them were hit. Hit him to the me. wrong part of the park. Yeah, and it was a really cool moment. It was one of my one of my favorite no, moments awesome. of being at a game because, like, you know, that the crowd really, really uh, embraced him, despite the, despite the fact that he played for three different teams that were division rivals. I think that showed you how how well liked Jim Tomei was and is. He's um, from everything I've ever heard, uh, and from what I've seen of seeing him like talk and speak he's genuinely like one of the kindest most like down-to-earth yeah. genuine people you could ever meet he's a, he's a good dude yeah he got like a 10 minute standing ovation from mm-hmm. the tigers fans which was which was really cool my other big baseball moment at a like live at a game uh, i was at the clinching game of the 2012 american league championship series where the tigers defeated the new york yankees in game oh that four. had to be fun which is also really cool. Again, not a Tigers fan, but I couldn't help but be a Tigers fan in that moment. Like it was just the whole stadium was just electric, and then you know we went out into the streets in Detroit, and we're everybody's jumping around and having a good time. It was a really cool moment as well. Mm-hmm. And that whole game, we were trolling Nick Swisher in right field, which is <laughs> pretty great. <laughs> I am very okay with uh, trolling Nick Swisher. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that may come up at a at a later time, but at uh, a later time, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so that's that's my baseball fandom. I also wrote about baseball for uh, thescore.com, which I, which still exists. Uh, there's a lot of great content that comes out of the score to this day. I used to write for a, um, a website that was sort of part of the score called Getting Blanked with Dustin Parks and Andrew Stoughton and Drew Fairservice. Uh, Drew Stoughton and uh, er, Andrew Stoughton and Drew Fairservice are both still active writers and podcasters, and you should go check them out. They're both excellent at what they do. And uh, did that for a couple of years and really sort of got into that, uh, to the baseball writing side of things. And then I kind of got to the point where I didn't really want it to be my job anymore because, uh, you know, when baseball became my job, it just became like, Ugh, I have to watch baseball today. Yeah, having a, it- <laughs> having a hobby as a job can become taxing. I know yeah. for myself, uh, kind of a tangent here, but, you know, going back to our own baseball connections, I make baseball art. Kind of, I do. Yeah, you make you make amazing baseball. I art. do. Our uh, logo is you designed our logo. Cartoons of baseball players. Um, I I'm hoping to do some other non-baseball things in the future, but it's been what I've been working on the last. Uh, gosh, I've been doing this for five years now. It's crazy. It feels like I just started doing it yesterday. Um, but yeah, to be able to have a day job that I work and then be able to do the art outside of that. 
like when I was in college, I always wanted to, you know, oh, I need to find the perfect art job. But looking back now with the hindsight of being a 30 year old, I'm thankful that I have the situation I do now where I have mm. my day job that I can work and make a living from. And then I have my art that I can just do without having to worry about what it is or who I'm placating to or, you know, just having that having that hobby that's separate from what you do. I, I think it, it gives you a space between work and play that, I don't know, some people can make it work, but for me, and I think for you, from what you've said, it, it's it's better to have those separated. To, yeah, I mean, to be fair, yeah. it also paid like shit. No shade toward the score, but it was not a good yeah. paying job. It was, it was part-time contract work. I was the weekend editor. I was not making enough money to justify the work that I was putting into it. The, the I, very I put two feet into everything, especially right. with baseball. So the very yeah, lucrative it, field of baseball blogging. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the in the early uh, teens. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it was. Um, if I had been paid real money to do it, if I'd put, if I was able to dedicate all my time, I was you know doing doing a master's and a PhD program at the time. So like I just didn't have the time to dedicate to it that I'd like to. But if I had done that, and you know, say I got a sweet gig writing for Fangraphs or something like that. I'd probably still be doing it, but A, didn't have the talent, and B, didn't have the time to dedicate, or the I couldn't wait for the money to show up, so right. Um, so I had to let that go, but I think that that was better for my fandom, because I think that by the time 2014 and 2015 rolled around, which were, and 2016, which were very exciting years to be a Blue Jays fan again, uh, I was I removed enough from it being work that I was back into it, and like really going hard at it again, so... Sure. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's our that's our stories. That's who we are. I'm sure over the next few episodes, we'll continue to talk about ourselves because everybody loves to do that. And um, should we get into the game? Absolutely. Let's do it. Cool. So I'm going to try a thing here, and we'll see how this goes, um, where I kind of do like a little Sports Center intro thing for, uh, for the game. So uh, I'll introduce the game and the lineups and then do a play-by, or not play-by-play, but like a highlights package almost. So if you didn't have time to watch the game or, uh, you know, you just want that recap, it's going to come right now. It's June 24th, 1994. Heat records are being broken all across the American Southwest with temperatures reaching 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius in Denver and 122 degrees Fahrenheit or 50 degrees Celsius in Laughlin, Nevada. Elsewhere in Major League Baseball, Kirby Puckett collects his 2088th career hit, passing Rod Carew for the most of Minnesota Twins history. On ESPN Sunday Night Baseball, legendary play-by-play duo John Miller and Joe Morgan are in Toronto, Ontario, Canada for a rare visit to Skydome as the Baltimore Orioles take on the two-time defending World Series champion Toronto Blue Jays. However, all is not well north of the border. A potential work stoppage looms over baseball with the collective agreement between Major League Baseball and the MLBPA set to expire in August. And the Blue Jays, despite sending five players to the upcoming All-Star game at Three Rivers, Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, are in last place in the AL East with a record of 31-40. and 40. Inconsistent pitching and a lack of depth outside the top five hitters in the lineup uh, has, seen the Toronto, uh, has seen Toronto slump hard, losers of seven in a row coming into the game. The Orioles, meanwhile, are looking for the sweep and have their young ace, 25-year-old Mike Messina, on the hill. New owner Pete Angelos, uh, eager to swing his big old billionaire balls around the owner's (laughs) club, has spent big on his new club, signing a trio of free agents, first baseman Rafael Palmero from Texas, third baseman Chris Sabo from the Cincinnati Reds, and legendary closer Lee Smith from the division rival Yankees. 
Toronto comes into the game second in the AL East with a 40-31 and 31 record, trailing those very same Yankees by four games. They are tied with the defending AL West champion Chicago White Sox in the newly birthed wildcard. In 1994, that saw the addition of the Central Divisions to Major League Baseball's structures as the playoffs expanded for the first time since 1968, or 69, I guess was the first year where they expanded. Each league will double the number of teams sent to the playoffs from two to four, as uh, each of the three division winners will be joined by a wild card, the team with the best record among the non-division winners. The pitching matchup, the aforementioned Messina, who comes into the game with the league-leading 10 wins and a 287 ERA for the Orioles, while the Blue Jays send 29-year-old right-hander Todd Stottlemyre to the hill, the potential laden fireballer has pitched well so far this year with a 384 ERA. For the Baltimore Orioles, their lineup starts with center fielder Brady Anderson batting second at third base is Chris Sabo. The first baseman Rafael Palmero bats third. In the cleanup spot is the shortstop Cal Ripken Jr. batting fifth, the designated hitter Harold Baines batting sixth, the catcher Chris Hoyles. In the seventh spot, newly acquired Dwight Smith came over from the Angels in a trade last the week before this game started. Uh, second baseman Mark McLemore hits eighth and batting ninth is the rookie phenom right fielder Jeffrey Hammonds. For the Blue Jays, Leading off is center fielder Devon White, followed by Roberto Alomar at second base. The designated hitter Paul Molitor bats third. Cleanup hitter is the right fielder and World Series hero Joe Carter. Batting fifth at first base, John Olerud. Batting in the sixth spot in left field, Mike Huff. Batting seventh at third base is Ed Sprague. The catcher and 92 World Series MVP Pat Borders bats eighth and batting ninth. Defensive wizard, light hitting shortstop Domingo Cedeno. All right, so on to the game. We pick it up in the bottom of the second after a John Olerud single and a Mike Huff double put runners, two runners in scoring position, but Messina, as a harbinger of things to come, strikes out Ed, Ed Sprague and flashes the leather on a Pat Borders comebacker to end the inning and escape unscathed. Top of the third, Dwight Smith takes Todd Stottlemyre deep to left center field for an opposite field home run, his sixth of the season and first as an Oriole. It's one to nothing Baltimore. Later in the inning, after a couple singles from Baltimore, Chris Sabo knocks in a run on a fielder's choice to Alomar, making it 2-0 Baltimore. Then, with a runner on third, Stottlemyre bears down and strikes out Cal Ripken Jr. on three straight curveballs to end the inning. In the bottom of the third, Domingo Cedeno singled, Devon White bunted him to third, and Roberto Alomar brought him home with a sack fly deep to left field. The Jays cut the lead to 2-1. Pick it up again in the top of the fifth, one out for Brady Anderson, who rockets one to right field for his eighth home run of the season. It's 3-1 Orioles. Stottlemyre and Messina then settle into the middle innings and dominate. Stottlemyre struck out two to end the top of the seventh. He had eight Ks to that point. In the bottom of the eighth, Messina struck out Cedeno looking on a nasty knuckle curve, descended to the ninth, still 3-1 Baltimore. After eight solid innings from Stottlemyre, left-hander Tony Castillo took over in the ninth and proceeded to struggle. Lonnie Smith and Jack Voigt got back-to-back pinch hits, a single and a double respectively, and then Mark McLemore walked to load the bases with one out. Then Jeffrey Hammonds hit a sharp grounder, to th- sharp grounder to third to Ed Sprague, who threw it home instead of going for the easy double play. He hit Lonnie Smith in the back of the head, and chaos ensued. Two more fielding misplays later, and the Blue Jays desperately throwing the ball all around the infield. The Orioles cleared the bases and took a 7-1 lead. Messina came back out in the bottom of the ninth and got Paul Molitor to ground into a game-ending 5-4-3 double play to give the Orioles the 7-1 victory, sweeping the Blue Jays, who have now lost eight in a row all right that's enough of that so that's the game that's what happened how do we feel about it how do we feel about this game in 1994 scott 
Uh, well, there's a lot of interesting points we can go over. Um, I know we had touched on it a little bit. Uh, we can go more into depth with this. Uh, I know they brought uh, Joe Morgan and John Miller, uh, the you know very sometimes beloved, sometimes maligned, uh, you know, baseball tonight uh, <laughs> broadcast duo. Uh, had brought I, think, up, I think John Miller. John Miller's basically yes, beloved. Yes, he right? is beloved. It's Joe, it's Joe Morgan. Joe Morgan, that's more not so much. Occasionally maligned. Yeah. yeah. Joe Morgan, the player, beloved. Joe Morgan, the broadcaster. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, they had brought up uh, the recent struggles of the Jays. Obviously, the seven, which would then become eight game losing streak. Um, go on to be ten, by the way. They lost the next. Oh two wow! Games as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was, it's interesting. I know, uh, you had mentioned this as well. You know, they had mentioned, uh, you know, uh, a struggling John Olerud who was maintaining a 374 OBP at the time. Um, <laughs> and who was a 24% above league average hitter yes. on the season. Like it was very good, but he had a very good season. If you look just at his batting average, as well as even just his overall numbers from the previous year, um, he had had a career year in 93 when they won the World Series. If you'll mm-hmm. give me just a moment here, I will pull up his slash line. Yeah, so in 1993... Let's see if I... Could I guess it? Can go I ahead. Guess the yeah, slash line? guess it. So I, have, I haven't looked this up. Uh, they get 93, very important season for my uh, for my baseball fan. Core memory. And, and uh, yeah, core memory. And John Olerud's chase of 400, which lasted, I believe, into August. He was hitting like over 390 into wow. August or something. He was just having an insane year. He ended up 363 with the batting average, winning the batting title. I think he had like a 474 on base percentage or something absolutely absurd like that. And then like a, I'm going to say like 546 slugging percentage, something in that range. It might have been higher than that. So the batting average you got exactly. He did hit 363 that year. Um, yeah. His OBP, you were off by one point. It was 473, oh, which that was entirely a guess. <laughs> did lead all of baseball. The OBP, the the batting average led the AL, not the NL. The OBP led all of baseball. Ooh, ooh, ooh. can I guess who led the NL? Uh, was, was sure, it, go uh, ahead. Was it Tony Gwynn? Uh, that that would be my guess. Uh, let's take a look here. I think he was also chasing 400 that year. I think that was like I know he did in '94 as well. Ninety, yeah, uh, ninety four was the the year that gets talked about because I think he finished three ninety four. Uh, yeah. No, Tony Gwynn did not win the batting title in ninety three. Who oh, won the batting no title that year in the NL? I'll have to look that up. Um, anyway, going Some back to Colorado Rocky or some bullshit. It probably, you, you know, <laughs> what was was that the crazy Dante Bichette year? No, I don't think so. Ninety three was the first year of the Rockies' existence. I don't think they. Oh yeah, no, that was in ninety five when he hit three forty. And like was worth like negative point two war or whatever it was that was <laughs> for a absurd. playoff bound Rockies yeah. team, which people kind of forget about. But yeah, um, to the playoffs. That no, so Olerud in ninety three slugged five ninety nine, um, five ninety nine, okay. which was a career high for him. Uh, and not much of a not much of a power hitter, no. Right, Olerud, no, for he a first was, baseman at least. He was he was kind of a gap to gap guy. Um, five hundred career doubles. He had fifty four that year, which led all of baseball. Um, mm-hmm. To go with 24 home runs, so lots of extra base hits, which is good. Uh, overall slash line, uh, let's see, 363, 473, 599. That's a 1,072 OPS, which led the AL, not the NL. Oh, I know who. Um, well, I should say uh, Barry Bonds, I'm guessing, led all of baseball with his slash line that year. Uh, did not win the batting title that year, though. I still don't know who that was. 
Um, and Olerud led the AL with a 186 OPS plus. So that's 86% better than league average, <laughs> which is really, really good. Yeah, and if you're comparing John Olerud 94, or any other year for that matter, to John Olerud 1993, obviously he's going to look a lot worse. So, However, it is like John Olerud's one of the most, to me anyways, one of the most very underrated, underrated. Of, the 90, of the 90s. Yeah, like just even when he wasn't having his out of his mind years, he was still very good. So, for comparison, in 94, he finished Oops. the year hitting 297, 393, 477, 869 OPS, OPS plus of 124, 24% above league average. Uh, his career OPS plus of, was 129, so that was, like, right in line with what he did on his career, basically. Yeah, and he had some great years with the Mets yes. Mariners later in yep. his career, and then I think he was on the Red Sox and the Yankees at the very end of his career, too. Which is weird. So he was um, in, uh, let's see, Toronto from 89 through 96, Mets from 97 through 99, signed with the Mariners in 2000, was with them mm-hmm. through the first part of 2004, then went to the Yankees, which yeah. I'm sure no one remembers, and then I guess <laughs> he played 87 games for the 2005 Red Sox, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. Notably from Seattle, actually, or yes. from Washington State, at least. That's why he went to the Mariners. Uh, went um, to high school and college in the Washington State area. Yeah, where he was a two-way player, both a pitcher and a hitter, and uh, had a brain aneurysm at some point, I yes, believe, Yes, traumatic in brain injury. And that was why he yeah. always had the helmet when fielding. Had the helmet, yeah. Yes. Yeah, he always had the helmet on. Yeah. Isn't yeah, a great he, hitter. Isn't he considered, like, one of the best college baseball players, like, ever? I, yeah, I think so. I, I Like, he was both, he was both like... A pitcher and a hitter. And yeah. I remember, like, even when the Jays drafted him, there was talk that he might be a pitcher, but they they just loved his bat so much. That like, they, I've... Yeah, and, and he went straight... He didn't play any minor league games right. either. He went straight no, to the majors. No, he went straight to the majors. No, because I've, yeah. I've never been a big NCAA guy, so, like, I don't, you know, I don't know what kind of numbers he put up compared to, you know, everyone else in that league, but if... I remember reading or listening somewhere that he, he he's considered one of the best college baseball players ever. Like, the numbers he yeah. put up in college were stupid, apparently. Yeah, and then, like, I mean, his arrival so quickly from being drafted to, like, literally that same year, like, no minor league games, uh, to playing in the major leagues was part of the reason why the Jays were able to swing what is probably the most, at least the most talked about, if not the most important trade in Blue Jays history, which was allowing them to trade their star first baseman, Fred McGriff, to the San Diego Padres, along with uh, my first favorite player that i remember having before i was really a baseball fan tony fernandez mm-hmm. uh to the san diego padres for roberto alomar and joe carter yes uh and uh, and then of course the the jays ended up getting tony fernandez back for their 1993 postseason run um and fred mcgriff i think played a few maybe three years with san diego and then was then signed with atlanta and went on went on to have a really great career who now is in the hall of fame so uh, he didn't actually, and this is a funny thing. He didn't actually sign. Well, I think he may have signed an extension with Atlanta down the road, but yeah, he only played. He traded there. Yeah, no, he played parts of three seasons in San Diego. Um, he was part of the infamous 1993 Padres fire sale, uh, not mm-hmm. the first or the last Padres fire sale. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think because they dumped both he and Gary Sheffield, if I remember right, at yep. that time, and got Sheffield to the to the Marlins, right? Not a whole lot. I think. They got Trevor Hoffman back for Sheffield, which, yes. I mean, like, yeah. that's still good. Like, you know, basically, for all intents and purposes, a Hall of Famer for a Hall of Famer. But you could, you know, argue about yeah. 
how good <laughs> one of them's in the a, hall of fame maybe wh- undeservingly and the other is not in the hall of fame probably should, be. probably should right. be right yeah. yeah and you can talk about the merits of getting a good closer for a good position player but yeah the, but I, I would say that trade worked out okay for the yeah players, given because I, I think sheffield only had a couple years left on his deal because he ended up signing a big contract with, with the, the Dodgers, right? Once he was traded in the Mike Piazza deal to the Dodgers and then right, so he went weird yeah. when Piazza was a Marlin for like 40, 40 minutes. Robbie Alomar and Joe Carter and like John Olerud was kind of made that trade possible by being so good so quickly right. and uh, and you know McGriff was coming up on free agency and the Jays got uh, so was Joe Carter. Uh, <laughs> they got Roberto Alomar who ended up being obviously a Hall of Fame caliber player for them for a number of years. Joe Carter was a free agent I think think after 92 so i think he only had one or two years left on his deal with uh with the jays when he got there and then he signed again it was either before 92 or 93 that he signed again to a long-term deal with the blue jays so he ended up playing into the late 90s or mid 90s with the jays yeah he was there all the uh, way through 97 it looks like yeah yeah so the other thing about joe carter which i do want to mention because i remember when i first started to become sabermetrically inclined in the late aughts and kind of going back and looking at players that I had previously liked and thought, wow, John Alderu was a lot better than we thought he was because mm-hmm. on base percentage, right. like, damn. Uh, and then Joe Carter, kind of the opposite of that. Uh, his, <laughs> numbers, his numbers don't look so good when you, uh, nope. when you go back with modern eyes. They do not. However, however I maintain, fuck y'all. Uh, <laughs> he's still one of my favorite players of all time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, he had some great moments and he definitely, he's like, sort of a quintessential toolsy guy like he was a like when he played for the clevelands in the 80s yes. he was a big time like center field uh excellent defensive center fielder who hit for power who had speed who like he did all the things that you want a baseball player to do but uh he didn't really get on base very much uh <laughs> but and he was always lauded for being like the run producing rbi rbi God, man which, yeah which is hilarious in retrospect because like most of that reputation came from when he was on the Blue Jays, where he literally was hitting behind Devon White, Roberto Alomar, and later Paul Molitor. Who were <laughs> you know, like, all on-base machines. I, I could get 90 RBIs hitting behind those three dudes. It, he's still a big part of, of my fandom, and I remember just absolutely loving Joe Carter. But yeah, looking back, not particularly great as no. a player. He was good. He was a good player, but probably should have been hitting 7th or 8th in that lineup at, at uh, in yes. the early 90s yeah. there. So yeah, the Blue Jays in this game, it's weird because I remember 94, I mean, I was too young to be analytical, Mm -hmm. but I remember 94 being like a really exciting year because it's like, wow, they're going to do it three years in a row. They still have this great team. Well, and they're still, the 92, 93 Blue Jays are still the last team other than the Yankees to repeat like that. No one else has done it since then. And I think they kind of get lost to history a little bit because you had that Yankee dynasty that came like right after that. Yeah, not um, here. We still talk about it constantly, but oh, sure. <laughs> Canadians never forget. Oh, uh, absolutely. The Blue Jays in the early nineties. It's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hear that from Americans a lot. Like, oh yeah, the Blue Jays used to be good. It's like, dude, it's all we all all we ever talk about is the ninety two, ninety three Blue Jays. Well, teams. especially like, post Expos. What else are you going to talk about? Unfortunately, yeah, we'll do one of those games in yeah. the future. I was mm-hmm. watching. I was watching one the other day, and I, I uh, it brought. I was as big an Expos fan. I forgot to mention that in my fandom. I was as big an Expos fan as I was a Blue Jays fan. Because uh, their games were on, on TV all the time as well. No, and, uh, we'll we'll definitely do some Expos games, and we can yeah. get in the weeds with that. That'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. Like the Jays had the the top five hitters in their lineup: uh, Devon White, Roberto Alomar, Paul Molitor, Joe Carter, 
John Allerud were all all stars in 1994. They were all having really good years. Um, they like De- Devon White, another guy who's just an absolutely underrated player, uh, absolutely terrific defensive center fielder who did a lot of things right. Um, that that those top five guys in that lineup were just incredible. And then, kind of, I guess what happened to that team in '94 was that they were supposed to have Carlos Delgado, Sean Green, and Alex Gonzalez, two very young, very highly touted prospects, or three very young, very highly touted prospects, who were supposed to sort of take over in left field, uh, right field, and shortstop, and that just didn't really happen. Uh, they were all terrible in the beginning part of the season. They were all sent to the minor leagues. And, uh, I mean, Delgado, I guess, had a really good start and then kind of tapered off. They ended up not really replacing those guys with anybody because Dick Schofield was their shortstop, and he was bad. Uh, he was hurt in this game, and that's why Sedania was playing. And they had, like, Mike Huff playing in the outfield, and obviously Carter was still in the outfield, but, you know, like they, they kind of wanted to play green there more and kind of mm-hmm. move Carter to a first base DH and kind of swap him in around with Allerud and, and Molitor and that never happened so like the depth of the team just really took a hit and outside those top five hitters they were terrible and uh the pitching also was pretty bad that year in the broadcast they say the pitching's decent but was it something where they started out okay and then as the year wore on they got worse well we should just look at the stats <laughs> That's true. You're right. I do have baseball yeah. reference up. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, so they they finished did. the year 55 and 60 because that, that's the thing. After that 10 game losing streak, they would have been like 31 and 44. They actually played really well from that point after the 10 game losing streak to the end of the season. They played very, very well. Uh, but then the strike hit and yeah. everything stopped. So um, looking at what uh, they're pitching. Um, they finished, and we're just—I'm just looking at ERA. Obviously, not the best way to measure pitching, but it's you know short, quick shorthand. Um, Four seventy ERA for the whole staff, uh, which would have seventh in the AL. So like, not bad. Not bad. Like top not ten. Not bad if they could hit, but not you know yeah. But if you if you're not getting you know offense to support that, like and the Blue Jays of that of that era, and really every era for that matter, except for maybe the late '90s teams, have always been a bat first team. Uh, like in the ni- in the early nineties, that was that was their problem. I mean, they had to go out and get guys like they had to mm-hmm. trade some real prospects like Jeff Kent and some other dudes t- in order to get guys like Jack Morris and David right, Cohn and right. like to to kind of supplement what they had in their rotation because people kind of forget too that Pat Hankin w- wasn't really a factor until ninety three when he won the Cy Young, um, or not when he won the Cy Young, he won the Cy Young in ninety six. But uh, I mean, he sort of like became like a really great pitcher in 1993, but in 92, he wasn't. Juan Guzman was sort of like inconsistent. Todd Stottlemyre was this like Danny Salazar-like player, actually. All the talent uh, in the world, but couldn't put it together talent, or got yeah. hurt a lot. The talent and the stuff, mm-hmm. but just never put it together. And like they had uh, they had to get Dave Stewart, and they had like a young Al Leiter who was bad <laughs> at the time. Yeah, Al Leiter uh, uh, in 94 uh, had a 508 ERA. Um, also, yeah. Al Leiter was 28 in 94, older than he I would was, have thought. He was old. He yeah. was, the thing was, he was like, he started off with the Yankees organization and got traded to the Blue Jays. I forget what the trade was. Here, let me look it up right here. How many that trades, was also a big trade. How many trades did Steinbrenner make in the late 80s where he was just shipping, like, hemorrhaging prospects? Because, like... <laughs> All of them. Because... <laughs> And, again, I don't want to go too in the weeds here, but, like, so you have Leiter. McGriff was a Yankees prospect. Um, 
when did he trade uh, who was uh, Jay Buhner was a Yankees prospect? Yeah, yeah, famously. Um, uh, yeah, obviously everyone everyone knows the Seinfeld <laughs> bit. Yeah, um, I know there were more besides that. Those are the only three I can think of. But yeah, he just traded anyone and everyone who had a pulse so he could get viable major leaguers into the lineup and it really kind of bit them in the ass yeah. until he got himself banned and gene michaels well, so was is... able to actually cultivate a farm <laughs> so april 30th 1989 so note the timing first of all april 30th is not a time when a trade typically no happens it is in major not. League baseball at least not one of note mm-hmm. uh so april 30th 1989 uh al Leiter was traded to the toronto blue jays from the new york Yan- new york yankees for outfielder jesse barfield and at that point that would have been the cold, dying husk of Jesse Barfield. Yeah. Eight, like, star in the 80s with the Blue Jays. But by 1989, uh, he was no longer what he had been up to that point. So that, that was quite a coup for the Blue Jays to get Al Leiter. And then, of course, he never really did anything with the Blue Jays. He had uh, he pitched for a long time for Toronto, 1995, or from 1989 to 1995. But he got hurt all the time. And that was always the thing against him. It was like he had elbow surgeries and shoulder surgeries. He finally put it all together in his last year with the Jays in 95. He had like a 393 ERA, which by the standards of 1995 baseball was very good. Mm-hmm. And then he uh, he went to Florida and New York and the Mets after that. So that's kind of where he... Yep. Like, but that was all in his 30s. He was like mm-hmm. he was like a really good pitcher in his 30s. Yeah, uh, he was kind of a late bloomer. Uh, yeah, he, put, he had that 95 season, uh, was excellent in 96, and then not nearly as good in 97, but was, of course, part of the uh, 97 World Series winning Marlins team that broke my grandma and dad's and many other <laughs> uh, Cleveland baseball fans' hearts. Yep. Although, really, who truly broke everyone's heart that year was uh, Jose Meza, and maybe at some point we can go into that and oh we'll get into that yeah. i'm sure in another uh-huh. episode yeah so so let me let me just also the al Leiter's trade history is interesting because he's so he signed as a free agent with the marlins but then in february of 1998 during the marlins fire sale yes. they won the world series he was traded along with ralph milliard to the new york mets for rob stratton and jesus sanchez no big deal right and also aj burnett who <laughs> i kind of completely forgot it, it uh, is really was, funny. It was, was a New York Mets prospect yeah. and who was traded to the Marlins and then eventually became a Blue Jay, of course. It, it is really funny career. because people, you know, rightfully ripped the Marlins and Wayne Huizinga uh, at that time for blowing that World Series team up. But basically all the pieces they got back in those trades, by and large, were part of the core that they then had when they won the World Series again in 2003. AJ yeah, Burnett like they, was part of that. I think Derek Lee might have been one of the pieces they got back. Yeah. Uh, the, Mar- the Marlins of the late 90s and early 2000s, like, in spite of their shitty ownership between Hyzinga uh, and Jeffrey Loria, yeah. uh, like, really did have a great front office who was able to identify young talent in a way that they had some serious player dev chops. Yeah, they did, for mm-hmm. sure. What, el- what else about this? So, we're talking a lot about the Blue Jays, obviously, because I'm a Blue Jays fan. Sure. I know that. So, but... if we shift to the Orioles a little bit, um, they had mentioned that uh, Peter Angelos had just you know, acquired the team and had spent a bunch of money on him in the previous offseason. Which is hilarious, given what we know about yeah, Angelos given now. Yeah, but... <laughs> what happened in the 30 years after that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, and uh, one of the guys they brought in was Rafael Palmero. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting, Palmero obviously now is known as, you know, this guy who, you know, lied in front of Congress and, you know. <laughs> I did not take steroids. Yeah. Should we, should we get our steroid stances out of the way before people get mad yeah, at us? Yeah, so let's... switch us off now. Yeah, we may as well just to. say that up front. So I, I think I speak for both of us when I say neither of us give 
a rat's ass about steroids, at least from this particular era. There was no regulation, there was nothing in place. Bud Selig, frankly, was, I don't want to say promoting it, but just kind of letting it happen to cover up for his own sins. You know, you had guys like Tony LaRussa who knew it was going on and wildly benefited from it. You know, if you look at yep. those 80s A's teams that had Kinseko and Maguire, who both were roided up to the gills. And then again, when he was in St. Louis with Maguire, when he went on his, you know, crazy home run binge, you know, who was probably even more roided up at that point. But like, at the end of the day, like steroids don't inherently make you a good baseball player. If you or I were to, although we're also not the right age to be doing this, um, but if we if we were in our physical primes and took steroids and were these, you know, cut physical specimens, we still probably couldn't hit a 98-mile-an-hour fastball. There has to be something there to make you a good baseball player before you do it. So to say that all of this era's high offense and player performance was due to that, I think is not being intellectually honest. You know, there were a lot of other mitigating factors, whether it was, you know, juiced baseballs or the you know these That's new ballparks the like Camden Yards the Orioles ballpark that were built at the time that were very small and hitter friendly and you also had you know expansion that happened twice during the 90s you had the Rockies and the Marlins in 93 and you had the Diamondbacks and Rays in 98 which all four of those franchises had some truly woeful teams and players that were seeing regular you know playing time around then which i think largely contributed to some of the offense that was going on and just the player pool in general was massive at this time and you had a lot of not great guys getting jobs because of expansion so yeah uh, i just you know yeah. like it, it was a part of the game it happened i think it's dishonest to not count that stuff now but it obviously did affect things, right? Sure, and I mean, absolutely. Like when you had guys playing into their forties and still doing what they were doing, right? That's the big thing. Was it kept guys yeah. healthy? You know, Mark McGuire. Healthy, yeah. Mark McGuire doesn't hit seventy home runs, not because the steroids made him hit home runs, but because the steroids kept his, you know, his calf muscles from falling off of his bones. Basically, yeah. I mean, the way he tells it, he didn't start doing them until the mid 90s which makes sense when you look at his right career, and he, he said the whole the reason he started that. taking them was because he was so frustrated with injuries which if yeah, you look 90 i think it was 93 or 94 yeah. where he was just out for a bunch of time yeah and, if you look then he started at taking them his bref page here in 1992 he was an all-star had a 970 OPS, which was uh, good for 76% better than league average that season. And then 93 and 94, he played 27 and 47 games respectively due to injuries. Yeah. Uh, 95 played in 104 games, which but that was a shortened yeah, season right. too. Yeah, right. Shortened season, like 120 games that right. year or something. Uh, no, it was, uh, and I, I remember this because Albert Bell played in every game that year. Uh, it 50, was 144 or 43 game season. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so he would have missed, like, you know, 30, 40 games approximately, um, probably due to injury. And then after that was when he really took off. 96, he hit 52 home runs, 58 and 97, then 70 and 65 and 98 and 99. And in all those yeah. years, he played 130, 156, 155, 153. He hadn't played 150 games or more since 1991 before that. So that yeah, really exactly. tells you all you need to know. He he only stayed healthy after he started using. You know, it's important to sort of be balanced about that. Because it is like, 
it clearly did something for certain people. Oh, sure. But, we don't, but, but the fact that we don't know who was doing it, right. we don't know how prevalent it was, we can't ever say for certain unless someone's admitted to doing it that they did or did not do it. Like, are we, we going to delude ourselves and think Roberto Alomar wasn't taking something in the late 90s? He's in the Hall of Fame. What about Pudge? What about all these guys, right? Like, sure. You know, it, but at the same time, I think the biggest factor, and this has sort of been borne out in some of the research that's been done, is is that the balls were juiced like fucking crazy in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And that is and into, into the 2000s. And that's the real reason why we saw even guys who I think were clearly not uh, using steroids. I think that's, that's why we saw them start hitting more home runs as well. well. It wasn't just the sort of... Uh, you know, right, guys who were obviously roiding out, whose you know sure. bicep muscles were popping and popping through their fucking jerseys and shit. Like, um, by the way, this is going to be an explicit podcast. <laughs> I can stop myself from swearing. So, uh, but, but, shit. Uh, yeah, shit balls, balls. Um, but yeah, like, and we can get into that with Paul Mero. He's an interesting guy because he he stood up in front of Congress and said, "I did not do it," and then hilariously got caught. Like, I think it was like two weeks later. Yeah, and so, then he had to like wear he had to wear like earplugs in his ears. <laughs> like because uh, fans were booing him so much, so which I think is kind it's of interesting funny. with Paul Mero going back to the point I was going to bring up. Um, when you look at him, and maybe looking at him in later years, it's more noticeable. But he didn't seem like a guy that was as big, hulking. Like I mean, obviously, he wasn't. like he was yeah, he, he was in good shape. He was a you know a professional athlete who took care of himself. You know, he did not have anywhere near to the same kind of, you know, bulging muscles that a Mark McGuire or a Sammy Sosa or a Barry Bonds or Jose Canseco or, you know, Ken Caminiti or some of these other guys who, you know, if you look now, it's obvious they were on something. I mean, he he came up as a left fielder who was, you know, six foot 180. Right. Well, he was, and, uh, and like, he was like a slappy, happy, like singles hitting guy yeah. originally, uh, and, when and he was up with one. the Cubs. Like he, he had, yeah. He had, like, no, he was a good player. Numbers and stuff, but... He was like a glove first contact first baseman. Uh, not all that different from Olerud actually, uh, when he first came up. And then I think it was while he was in Texas, which mm-hmm. actually, if which, you think by about the way, it, you know Jose Canseco was, was in Texas at that time. So <laughs> exactly, yeah. No, actually, no. Uh, the whole steroid era was Jose Canseco's fault. Um, you can trace it. <laughs> well, he, I mean, he wrote two books about it. He sure, sure did. Well, don't don't um, read them; they're but, dumb. Yeah, no. But anyway, uh, yeah, no. Palmero started hitting for power at the very end of his tenure in Texas, and then went yeah, to Baltimore. In his late twenties. Yeah. yeah. Um, and started putting up, you know, 30 home run season after 30 home run season. And 40 home run season. Yeah. No, he... Between, between 1995 and 2003, the lowest number of home runs he hit in any season between that time was 38. Yeah. No, he was flirting <laughs> like with 40 was... pretty much every year. Because I think yeah, he maxed he was at out 47 at 40, a couple times. Yeah, 47 yeah. or 48. Um, 47, yeah, 99 and 2001. Back, back with Texas, actually, in both of those Well, at some uh, point, we'll talk about his infamous 99 season where he won a gold glove even though he only played, like, 30 games in the field. <laughs> yeah, he was basically a DH. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, but, yeah, so someone else, actually, who we can bring up, too, and another guy well, who... I hope it's the same guy I'm thinking of. I was just going to say... I can't wait to talk about this guy. Uh, were you going to bring up Brady Anderson? I was indeed going to bring up so, Brady Anderson. Yeah, so not <laughs> this season, but a couple years later in 96, he had, I don't know, what's probably the most, other than maybe Jose Bautista, which we can go more into that at another time, probably the most unexpected 50 home run season ever, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um just kind and of never did it again. Yeah, because at least <laughs> at Bautista, you know, made some legitimate changes to his swing profile that led to it. With Anderson, yeah, out of but, nowhere, uh, 
1996, uh, hang on, I need to get his profile. I keep clicking I got, on I got the, it up here. You got it up? Yeah, go for stats. it. Yeah. 1996 is age 32 season. Uh, 297, 396, 637 for a 1034 OPS, a 156 OPS plus, 50 home runs. Uh, he also, uh, I, baseball reference can be hard to read sometimes. He also stole 21 bases that year mm-hmm. he, uh, and, and played center field. He finished ninth in MVP voting, which tells you a little bit about the offensive environment he was hitting in in 1996. But yeah, an insanely good year. Can I go on a Brady Anderson rant? Sure, go ahead. And, and you may you may not agree with it. So this is where we're going to... I, uh, I, again, I don't care if he did steroids or not, but I don't think him hitting 50 home runs that season tells you a damn thing about whether or not he did steroids. Nothing, as far as I know, nothing ever came out about him using steroids, mm-hmm. I don't think, right? Was he, he wasn't named in any reports. Right. He wasn't named by any other players. Like, he, there was nothing in terms of actual evidence. The entirety of the evidence toward Brady Anderson is that he hit 50 home runs that one year. Mm-hmm. But... He was, and it's. They said it in this game. This is in, this is two years before that, in a year where he actually only hit twelve home runs. Yeah, one hundred eleven games. Yeah, he didn't even hit twenty that year. He hit two in this game. Mm-hmm. His uh, eighth and ninth. Yep. He was a power hitter. Like he, he, they talked about how he was not your typical leadoff hitter. That he was trying to hit the ball hard. And Brady Anderson, I think, uh, I think is a very very smart person. He's in the. I feel like, is he still in the Orioles front office? I think he's like way up. I think he like, was until very recently. Uh, yeah. They might have let him go after this most recent uh, front office shuffling that they had when they brought in the right. uh, the dude from the Astros. But um, sabermetrically inclined dude, yeah, who changed who changed his career actually in 1992 at 28 years old. So again older than you right think a guy. and he hit a career high 21 home runs that year right. after never hitting more than four in a season before yeah. that and that I, I i like i didn't do the deep dive for this but i remember doing it in the past he changed his swing profile and his approach entirely before the 1992 yeah. season he might have also been doing steroids who knows but he notably changed how he swung the bat he tried he was because he was this fast center fielder and mm-hmm. when you're a fast center fielder in the late 80s you were told to slap the ball and run right he decided in 1992 that he was going to try to hit the ball hard because big guy he can do it hit 21 home runs that year his his walk rate and on base percentage exploded and suddenly at 28 he became a very 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 good player mm-hmm even though he wasn't hitting 50 home runs, but he remained an excellent player really through to his late mid yes. to late thirties and hitting for power, like not 50 home runs, but he was still a guy who could, was good for 15 to 20, 20 plus occasionally. Like, yep. I don't like to me, like being like, Oh, Brady Anderson his quintessential steroid guy has never really made sense to me. Cause like, yeah, maybe he probably, maybe cause well, a bunch of people were, but like, I don't think that that 50 home run season tells you, anything in particular right. about no, whether I, he was doing that. I, I 100% agree. Two points I want to make. One, and I can't remember where I heard this. It might have been like an MLB Network bit from, uh, it might have been from Cal Ripken or from Bill Ripken. I can't remember who it was that said it. But someone I remember hearing about Anderson that he was he was a bit of a fitness nut and was like really mm-hmm. careful about what he put into his body and what he ate and did a lot of like intense fitness training stuff that wasn't as prevalent back then as might be now because if because like most baseball players now like if you if you get you know when they take their jersey off they're pretty much all across the board like yeah built like a greek god now you know someone like francisco lindor say is a different type of ripped than say you know aaron judge or john carlos stanton maybe 
but yeah. they're all still well built and fit and cut for by and large. That right. wasn't as common back then. And I, I know. and you know, when you have a guy like that who's taking care of himself, who manages what he's putting into his body, I think that type of player is going to be more akin to having, you know, like a breakout season like this or a fluke season like this. Um, when you combine that with the swing mechanic changes uh, that he was making at the time and approach changes, he right. was like told he was told early in his career not to walk. It's which <laughs> you know, like it's so swing bizarre. Early, swing often, and it's like, and, and in 1992, he's like, wait a minute, yeah. if I can take walks, why wouldn't I take walks? Right, you can still get on base. It's not a hit, but you're still going to be yeah. on base for the guy behind you. It, and we can maybe get more in the weeds, you know, if we have a game that we look at down the road in the 80s maybe that features leadoff hitters with, you know, sub-300 on base cool. percentages. There's an Expos-Orioles game from 19... Uh, or maybe 2000, actually. Uh, Sidney Ponson and Tony Armas Jr. Oh, baby. Uh, we, we, can, we can watch that one at some point, I, I, maybe, like, fairly early on, like six or seven yeah. episodes in, because, like, uh, holy shit, the old-school <laughs> baseball going on in that one is... And that's 2000. That yeah, that's not even that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, just um, bonkers, bonkers, mm-hmm. insane strategy. Just like, what are you fucking guys doing? And that's Felipe Alou, and I believe who I forget who Baltimore's manager. I think yeah, they had a, a standard manager for that game. Felipe but... Alou was a good manager too. Like yeah. he, yeah, smart, smart yeah. guy, excellent, smart manager, baseball yeah. man. Yeah, but legend, legend in Montreal. But no, I I agree with you 100. percent I don't think Anderson was necessarily on something just because he hit 50 home runs. I think there's yeah. a lot of other things at play here. Um, and again, I don't care if he was. Yeah, I'm just saying. That, I like, also don't. The people who people who point to 1996 and go that that's proof. Yeah. Oh, it's clearly not, he it's used. Not proof of, yeah. It's no, not proof of fucking no. anything. It, it's it's <laughs> it's proof that the the other teams in the AL East that year had bad pitching is maybe what it's proof of, if anything. Yeah, else. Yeah, and yeah, it, it's it looks like a crazy outlier for home runs because he never did it again. Did he just stop using steroids in 1997? Yeah, that, that just unlikely. that doesn't make sense. Like, yeah, like it just and I don't I don't know. That can happen, man. Like it's it's extremely rare. It's a statistical anomaly. But again, what we know about Brady Anderson was that he was a fitness nut who cared about his approach, who tried to hit for power, mm-hmm. and also was entering in 1996 was a rabbit ball year. Like again, there's been studies that have been done on that. 1996 specifically, out of all of those years that were that were part of the steroid eras was was even more insane than most and interesting so you you start combining a guy who maybe had enough power to hit 15 to 20 home runs just over the fence Mm -hmm. now with a rabbit ball suddenly those flyouts the warning track are going over the fence now he's trying to hit for more power because suddenly the ball is jumping off his bat a lot better Mm -hmm. and yeah you can see how he could you could squint and he can get to 35 and then if you squint and see he can get to 35 you can squint a little further and see him get to 50 it's not impossible right uh it's not likely and he might have just been jacked up on steroids for that one year. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But like, I just I've always thought the Brady Anderson discourse because the first thing that gets mentioned when you talk about Brady Anderson is steroids, mm-hmm. and that is that to me strikes me as being incredibly unfair to the man. I and like I'm not a sp- specifically a Brady Anderson fan. I didn't mm-hmm. like the Orioles growing up. I hated them. Uh, <laughs> and, like, you know, like, so I, it just, it just has always struck me as weird that that's the guy you look at, because when you look at his BRAF page, you see that 50 stand out like a sore thumb, but so lot, there are other statistical anomalies we could call up. Christian Yelich, maybe for a more modern one. Yeah. I don't think he's ever been on steroids, but he and absolutely. Cody Bellinger, the guy that, the guy that beat him for the MVP yeah. that year. Cody, yeah. Like, both you know, of them. I mean, I, you can kind of point to both of those guys and, 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 you know, 
say the explanation maybe a little more clear than you, than you could Brady Anderson, but like I don't know, they're just as anomalous, maybe not just as, but close to as anomalous. As and like as an aside, real quick here, um, at some point if we do look at more modern games, we have to do a Brewers Dodgers game from when they were at their peaks, just so we can go into the yeah. discourse about what the hell happened to them because. That yeah, is a true. fascinating thing to look at. But anyway, one more point yeah. I want to make about Brady Anderson, and then we can move on. Um, so it's funny, because I had mentioned, you know, when I was kind of first coming into baseball, very late 90s, early 2000s, Brady Anderson's last season in baseball as a 38-year-old, <laughs> he played for the 2002 uh, Cleveland baseball team that year, put up all of uh, negative uh, 0.2 war. He was very bad. <laughs> And he's also he's also 38. Yeah, no, he was very point. old and very bad. And for a long time, that was all I knew or remembered about Brady Anderson because I just remembered that one season he was with Cleveland when I was a kid, and I'm like, oh my god, he was awful. And then at some point, when I was starting to go through data points and stats and just looking at teams' bref pages, at some point I happened across this page and I was like, holy shit, this guy was actually good. Like it was just this weird yeah. like you know moment for me where, where I got to see that because I just remembered him being old and bad from when I was a kid because that was one man, of my nine, core baseball memories, I guess. 92, man, 21 homers, 53 stolen bases, good defense in center field. Like Yeah, that's that's it a, just it wasn't just 96. No, he was, that's he had a, a 5.2 war that That's year. an like, extremely you, valuable player. Yeah, and he had other years. Like, yeah, okay, there was the 96, he has 6.9 war. This is a baseball reference war. Uh, 5.2 war in 92. Uh, 3.7 war in 97. 5.9 war in 99. I mean, he was a really good player from, for well from into 92 his 30s. through 99, basically all of the 90s, uh, he put up 31.6 yeah, war and averaged about 4, 3.9 per that 650. That 99 season, 24 homers, yeah, 36 no, that's, stolen bases. That's a very good player. Four on base percentage that year. Yep. Like, I mean, come on. Yeah, okay, steroids, whatever. I just, I don't see why he gets singled out, and he does get singled out in a way that I don't think anyone else who doesn't have any definitive proof does. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. all the other guys that we single out, like Palmero and like, you know, Bonds, Bonds and McGuire, or McGuire, and Sosa, Sosa. And Clemens. Yeah, or, they all, there, there was smoke where that fire, right. there was fire where that smoke was, right? Like You either have them admitting that they did it, you have court testimony, you have, I would say, irrefutable sub evidence. substantial <laughs> circumstantial evidence, whether that's, yeah. you know, their appearance Balco drastically or changing, or yeah, relationships to Balco, or what have you. But yeah, no, there's, there's literally nothing linking Brady Anderson to steroids, other than the fact and that... Unless, he had unless one there season is. where he hit 50 home runs. I don't think maybe, there is. Maybe there, maybe there is, and we could we could be responsible podcasters and look it up, but I don't want to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you if you're if you're listening to this and you're like, ah, there was that report, or he did the admitted, okay, then send it and we'll correct the record later. But I don't believe yeah, that there was ever I anything. Don't, as far as I know, I don't think there was. I well, and I, I I honestly, if there was, do you think he would have a front office job with the Orioles, or would have had a front office job with them? Maybe with the, I mean, like. Because like Maybe, baseball, baseball has McGuire has maintained a relationship with the Cardinals and has you know had hitting coach jobs after admitting that he used and I I guess Bonds has kind of been around for some giant stuff but like Sammy Sosa and the and Cubs the Marlins he was Bonds of the Marlins yeah yeah you're right I forgot about that yeah but like <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sosa hasn't been in contact with the Cubs I think since he left them in 2004 yeah there's other, I think there's other reasons yeah for with, with Sosa yeah there's so. some there's some weirdness with some Sosa weirdness, that we yeah. can get into at a later time potentially I just I don't know I like I say I just I don't really care who did or didn't do it because at that time it wasn't being tested no for, it was not 
the baseball was benefiting from it and only the players took the heat. It wasn't the owners weren't, but Selig wasn't, you know, the managers like Tony La Russa weren't. Yeah. It was only the players that took the heat for that shit. And it was a systemic thing. It was not a individualized fa- moral failing of any particular person. Because if I was a baseball player in the mid 90s, I'd probably also be juicing. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, if it meant the difference between, you know, uh, life changing money and not life changing money, I'd probably make that sure. decision. I think most people would. We don't need to keep going on that. But uh, is there anything else that. Uh, so one of the sections or themes I wanted to focus on a little bit with this with this podcast mm-hmm. is like if baseball were different how different would it be mm-hmm. the uh, effectively wild uh yes uh, uh thing like so this was obviously different baseball so we maybe we can go back and forth and just say like things that we noticed about this game that are different from 2023 baseball sure. I'll go I'll go first velo <laughs> yes yeah that's a big uh, one yeah, like Todd Sotomayor being called repeatedly a fireballer. Somebody threw really hard. And then they even put, like, every once in a while, they'd flash up the radar gun reading, and it's like, ooh, 92, wah! Yeah. Like, what's the average fastball at right now? It's like 94 and a half or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, that was like 90, 95 miles an hour. The episode where they talked about they need to change the flame graphics yeah, for when exactly, guys throw yeah. hard because everyone can throw, like, whatever would cause that graphic to activate now. But, like, Todd Sotomayor, who legitimately, like, I remember that being the discourse around mm-hmm. him, hard thrower with a crazy good curveball. And that curveball was on display in this game. He yes, was making was excellent. Cal Ripken Jr., of all people, look absolutely foolish mm-hmm. with that curveball. He he was a, a, a good, he should have been better than he was, 92 miles an hour. And, like, Mike Messina, I think I look back on him as well, as obviously a Hall of Famer, and this was used in his age 25 season, in his mm-hmm. prime. Uh, he, like, he was throwing, like, 88 to 90 for most of this game. Well, and Musina was never a big strikeout guy either. Uh, If I remember right, I think he only had a couple years where he got up over 200 strikeouts. But I think later in his career, he was routinely throwing the 90s. Yeah, I think um, I think over time he may have changed his repertoire. You know, added some oomph onto his fastball. But yeah, he was never a guy. He was. Musina is interesting because he's he's a Hall of Famer. Should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, Great pitcher. Yeah, very good pitcher, very intelligent pitcher. Um, But it's interesting because I I wouldn't describe him as a power pitcher, but I don't know if I'd also describe him as a, like, a control freak or a Greg Maddox type either. Like, he's kind of somewhere maybe in between. He didn't walk many dudes. Yeah. He definitely didn't walk many dudes. Like, we can call up his numbers here. Yeah. Uh, I remember even just marveling at when they showed his stats at the beginning of the game that he only had, like, 27 walks and 119 Mm -hmm. innings or something. So he definitely had that as part of his game yeah his walk rates were in the five six percent range and later in his career four yeah that's that's pretty good so yeah i guess you could that's that's pretty elite yeah that's pretty elite so like he's uh man he was good (laughs) Mm -hmm. that 94 season was uh was his first like real real great year too um so okay what's what's your what's your baseball is different now thing uh, here's one. Uh, Chris Sabo, three seventeen on base percentage, hitting second. Although it's interesting, <laughs> I would say he's a better number. Both these teams have good. Yeah, actually, no. To most. I, I I maybe take that back. He was slugging four sixty nine, so that's actually not a. I, I would maybe if we're going true Saber lineup, maybe slot him third and put Palmero second. Uh, with you yeah. know the on base and power of Anderson Maybe. leading off, but that's that's. I put Ripken second. I go Anderson, Ripken, Palmero. Yeah, no, you're on, right because Ripken's three. got and good on base too. Um, you don't want the you don't want the lefties stacked together, right? Either, so. Yeah, so yeah, you could nitpick that a little bit, but yeah, um, 
I do think having a guy like Domingo Sedeno, uh, or Sedeno, <laughs> however that's pronounced, I apologize Cedeno, if I'm yeah. mispronouncing that. It's got, it's got, um, a, it's got a little end thing. The tilde? Cedeno. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, get tilde, on that yeah. B-ref. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, uh, having a guy like Domingo Sedeno, who's all glove, no bat in your lineup, you really don't see that anymore no uh i no, think largely don't. as a product of the shift and of defensive positioning which we'll see where that goes in the next few years here as we're about to embark on a season where they're greatly limiting the shift for the first time ever Sedeno, it's interesting because they mm-hmm. mentioned at one point in the broadcast that he'd never had a minor league batting average higher than 232 <laughs> and it's like a minor league batting average yeah you like, just... how did we ever think this guy was going to hit enough the because only... like he was i remember the narrative yeah. around him being that he was a big time prospect because his glove was so right good and but he just, there was no way just he was couldn't ever hit a lick. Hit. Yeah, no. Yeah. And you, the only place you really see that now, and I say this again as a Guardians fan who's had to sit through two years of, you know, Austin Hedges, God love him. Um, <laughs> Is that catcher? Yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah, at catcher. And then occasionally you'll see some other spots like, again, Guardians, Miles Straw had a, what was it, like sub 700 OPS this year. What a gold glove excellent defensive fielder and probably better offensively than he showed this year um which i think is part of why they've stuck with him uh but yeah he just did not hit at all this year um having him and hedges at the bottom of the lineup was absolutely brutal but anyway it's it's interesting too with like the going circling back to the two hitter real quick Mm because we will get into some games we will get into some games where we can really critique yeah yes wow that's a two hitter really you really thought that was Mm -hmm. a two hitter uh but both of these teams like relatively speaking for 1994 standards chris sable and roberto alomar great number two hitters yeah i met the blue jays and cito gaston specifically uh and i do want to say a little thing about cito uh but but cito gaston was big on the number two hitter being an actually good hitter which is why alomar always hit there yeah uh but he still had to handle the bat and bunt and there was a devon white bunting at one point in this game like it just you know that was another sort of baseball's different now you would never have yeah. devon white even with his speed you know, never have him bunting no. in a situation where they, you know, needed a run pretty badly down to nothing. They could Devon White could hit, man. He had some power, so like he wouldn't be doing that today, I don't think. But, yeah, I mean, I, the announcing. So, so Joe Morgan is interesting, and you know, forgive me for saying what maybe a lot of people know, but he's retired now as a as a as an announcer. I don't want to begrudge the man. Well, he's he also seems like a very did, nice man. He did pass away a couple of years ago too. I'm pretty sure. Oh, he did. Yeah. Okay. So, do you want to? speak ill of no the longer of this earth uh, <laughs> but yeah go ahead yeah he, he great absolutely amazing player uh arguably the best second baseman of all yes. time and 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 you know what like a good announcer pleasant voice to listen to charming guy and that's i care about that in my in my old age i care about that more than i, I agree how, i would like, i would rather have an announcer who is you know a lifer that loves baseball you know rather than yeah. someone who you know, might bring up some more modern stats, but it's just constantly denigrating the current style yeah. of play or something with the game. And he did do that a lot, especially later in his career. He he was this was not late career. No, Joe Morgan, this was not he late was career doing Joe that Morgan. more. Yeah, but 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 I just wanted to say, like, it's really Joe Morgan is an interesting test case, and A Rod is like this too, where the announcer and the things he cares about as an announcer versus what he did as a player are the polar opposite yeah so like joe morgan joe morgan was like an on-base very, power hitting very second bizarre. baseman yeah like he was a money ball well, money ball money he ball was a modern, before he was money a ball. modern second baseman he was a modern second baseman he was like power and on base hitting near the top of the order and the way he talks is like small ball 
de-emphasizing the walk and like second baseman should be out there to play defense and it's like dude that was not you were the opposite of that like you would right. think that and A-Rod's like that too now like A-Rod it's like he's all small ball it's like dude you were A-Rod you, you'd think you would care about baseball looking more like the way you played it you it, know and like a guy who has almost 700 career home runs losing his mind because you know so and so isn't bunning a runner over like it's it's truly yeah. truly uncanny valley it's weird man and it's like morgan was the king of that where it's like i remember looking at his at his BRF page and being like wow dude you actually walked a lot you were like sort of a modern day dude and then you get into the announcer's booth and you were the most old you're the the, the quintessential example of like old school out of touch announcer like there was literally michael Schur, who's gone on to fame you know being a showrunner and writer for uh and show creator for uh parks and rec mm -hmm. and uh and and uh, the american office and brooklyn 99 and the good life the good life and the good life good place. The good life? good place good place thank you i didn't like that one very much but uh we can get into that another time <laughs> But uh, but he he got his start writing about baseball with a site called Fire Joe Morgan. Right, mm -hmm. he was sort of the uh, the one of the first sort of snarky, sabermetric writers on the internet, which has long since fallen out of favor, thankfully. But uh, yeah, I mean, like the quintessential example of an out of touch old, old school guy. And you look at his stats, and it's like but you were you were cutting edge. You were tw you were thirty years ahead of your time, Joe Morgan, as a player. Like, what are you doing? Just a weird thing. So they had mentioned in the broadcast uh, how bad the bottom of Toronto's lineup was and how this was part of, you know, their issue this season and why they couldn't score more. And you had kind of mentioned some of this, but I'm just I'm looking at the starting lineup. So you have Devon White, Robbie Alomar, Paul Molitor, Joe Carter, John Olerud, which also John Olerud in a modern day baseball lineup would be hitting way higher than fifth. Oh, yeah. He's, I would, he's a, I would think potentially a leadoff hitter. Yeah, I would, like one of those weird first, first, first or hitters. second. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so those three all have OPSs over 800. Uh, Alomar, Molitor, and Carter in particular all over 880. Uh, Molitor over 900. Uh, Robbie Alomar at 895. Uh, very, very good uh, seasons. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the bottom four of Sean Green, Ed Sprague, Pat Borders, Domingo Cedeno. OPS oh, Mike is Huff. In... Mike Mike Huff, not Sean Green. <laughs> oh, am I looking at the wrong one here? I might... maybe yeah. Mike Mike Huff started in left field in that game. Oh, maybe I'm looking at the wrong thing. Uh, but still, Mike Huff was terrible yeah. too. So your point probably still stands. Right. Although he was having a good year at this time. I think he was sitting like 321 or something in this game. But he'd also only played like 15 games or something. I think by the end of the year, his numbers were pretty terrible too. Which like Mike Huff was not here? Mike Huff was not anything to write home about. Uh, I don't remember him being a big time prospect. Okay. Sean Green and Carlos Delgado were the guys. That All right, were so I've I've got the right guys. one here. Okay, so and I I had those numbers off. I was looking at a game from I think earlier in the losing streak. Okay, so Devon White, Robbie Alomar, Paul Molitor, Joe Carter, John Olerud, and then Mike Huff. I guess OPSs of 808, 878, 910, 862, 802, 850, and then Ed Sprague, Pat Borders, Domingo Cedeno. 655, 598, 502. Good lord. <laughs> yeah, so Cedeno was so bad. Yeah. He had a hit in this game, and I think John Miller was like, Domingo Cedeno actually hit the ball. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's usually that's a bad sign good. when you see a guy uh, get a hit, um, and yeah. the umpire's about as, or the umpire, the announcer's, you know, about as surprised as a, as a player is. Um, I guess something else we could go into, too, was just. And again, we may have touched on this a little bit already. Uh, how good Musina was in this game? Oh yeah, he was. I mean, he was Mike Musina. Yeah. At, in his, at the height of his powers, he mm -hmm. was. He 
carving the Jays up. Not again, not necessarily with strikeouts. I think it's six in the game, which yep. I guess for 90, 94 standards, pretty good for a complete game. Complete uh, game, yeah. uh, five hits, one run, no earned runs, one walk, and six strikeouts. Which I yeah, heck, I'd take that today, honestly. And that and that was like with that second inning where he kind of got hit around a little bit and mm-hmm. then got out of it. You take that out, and it's like pff, the guy was yeah, no, outside of that, yeah, they they couldn't hit him that day. Well, and they mentioned in yeah. the broadcast too that he strikes out. Did he strike out Alomar once, or did he strike him out multiple times? Uh, he struck him out uh, once, uh, but they they once. talk about how tough it is to strike out Alomar. Um, so yeah. that was they made a big deal out of that, which he was very hard to strike out. Well, and when he needed that that one that same, I think it was the second inning where he uh, he had second runners on second and third and one out, mm-hmm. and uh, he like when he could when he needed a strikeout, that knuckle curve was there and he yes. got it. You know what I mean? Like that was the thing is like back then it wasn't emphasized like it is now. Like now it's like strikeouts in all situations, but back then pitches were a little more situational and actually right? and like that reminds me of something else uh that they did with the broadcast that i remember them doing on other broadcasts from when i was a kid that i they don't really do anymore that i kind of wish they'd get back to they went through musina's entire pitch repertoire and actually showed the grips on each of his they pitches. did yeah espn though they've always kind of been at the forefront of that shit i feel like they were doing that 10 years before other Oh yeah, well, and this was that. this was peak ESPN too. This was they were vastly superior than whatever the hell it is now. I kind of wish broadcasts would get back to that though. It, it's yeah. interesting to see, to uh, you know, how, you know where where they're putting pressure on the ball to manipulate it and get it to do what they're doing. Especially now with all the Statcast and Rapsodo and TrackMan and what's that place out in Washington that guys go to? I can't remember the name. The Pitch Factory oh, yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Driveline. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Driveline. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like with that, you could really get in the weeds with that, you know, with pitchers going, okay, this is what I do with this and that. And, like, I'll see that sometimes, but I, I think it's just that it's kind of an untapped thing they could do more with. Um, but, yeah. anyway. Okay, so just a real quick story, because we're over an hour and a half, and we don't want to, well, after editing, we might be under that, but uh, we're approaching an hour and a half, so mm-hmm. uh, we should we should wrap it up. But yeah. So there was a lot of things in this game we didn't touch, like like uh, that Todd Stottlemyre, the last time he'd started before this game, he threw at Andre Dawson a couple times. Yeah, I remember them like, mentioning that. Yeah, like he had a tantrum, he threw a cooler into the field. That was sort of Todd Stottlemyre. That was his whole thing. That was the, uh, in 1993, during the World Series of Philadelphia, he told the mayor of Philadelphia to kiss his ass, and was yeah, he kind of had an attitude about him. Uh, it was sort of fun. And yeah, we talk about Alomar being a first class piece of shit in the next episode in, 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 but Cito Gaston is uh, an interesting guy was he a good manager like I don't know it's hard to tell with managers right like players definitely like playing for him mm-hmm. um, he was sort of a do nothing manager he like didn't really tinker with lineups he kind of sent the same lineup out there every every day he struggled most when he had to make decisions <laughs> and uh, for a lot of those early 90s base, Blue Jays teams he didn't have to make many decisions he's like you just throw them out there it's mm-hmm. good they're fine uh, they'll score nine runs a game without you trying to do anything with it. But uh, when in the mid and late '90s, when he was uh, with far inferior teams, he struggled a lot more with the sort of basic decision making. But uh, I do think he kind of got a raw deal. He never he the only team he ever managed was the Blue Jays, which he did so twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, was also a terrific hitting coach with a number of teams, including the Jays. But uh, yeah, but but Cito uh, was also a bit of a <laughs> had a spicy side, we'll say. And uh, he didn't like it when his team was beat by other players. So this this is the story, because Mike Messina is starting in this game. Mike Messina and Cito Gaston had beef, and I'm surprised that they didn't mention this in the broadcast, because it's to me it's like pretty juicy. So 
if memory serves me correctly, and I think it does, I kind of looked it up before we started, but the 93 All-Star game was in Baltimore. And at the time, Messina was having quite a good year, mm-hmm. and uh, he was and he was an All-Star. And, and so Cito had sat down his, his ace, Pat Hankin, who was also a first-time All-Star in 1993, and said, hey, man, you're 24 years old. You're going to get back here. I, I'm, not, I'm not putting you in this game. You're not going to pitch. Uh, he told Messina... Uh, that he also was considering not pitching him, which pissed everyone off because it's in Baltimore. Right? Yeah, it's a, it's not just an All Star game. Yeah, he's only twenty four as well, and yeah, he's probably he's Mike Messina. He got back there a lot, but getting back there in Camden Yards, like probably not. Right, so it's big deal, and and Messina was pissed about it, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> and then the game goes on. Cito doesn't put uh, Mike Messina in, and then in the ninth inning. With the crowd booing Cito, every time he came out to make a pitching change and didn't put in Musina, they would just shower him with boos. And by the way, Orioles fans did that to Cito for the rest of his career. <laughs> they booed him mercilessly every time he stepped on the field. And uh, Mike Messina, in the ninth inning of that All-Star game in 1993, got up and started warming up in the bullpen. Well, and Musina and the, and the crowd and, and and Camden Yards at the time, yeah. I believe, had this had the foul ground. Uh, maybe not. Maybe they don't. I don't remember. But but he he got up and started warming up, and the crowd went absolutely batshit insane because they thought, oh, yeah. our hero Mike Messina is coming into the game, and then Cito still didn't put him in. And then wow. afterwards, afterwards, Cito called it a classless move. Said he was gutless and classless. Wow. Uh, and and it was a whole thing again for a twenty four year old kid that he's saying this about, which is you know. Yeah, you look at that. And that that kind of gives me uh, similar vibes <laughs> to at the end of Musina's career when uh, that, that infamous, that's been gift into oblivion, that moment where he was with the Yankees and uh, Tori came to take him out and he's like, no, you stay there. You sit down. This yeah, yeah, game. you sit down. Yeah, because yeah, Messina was definitely spicy, but uh, yeah. as most pitchers in that time and mm-hmm. maybe now are. But but then, so, so then in 1994, they said it a bunch of times in this in the broadcast, not only is Messina an All Star, because at that time the All Star game or the All Star rosters had been released. I think the All Star mm-hmm. game was like a couple weeks after that game, uh, and they knew Mike Messina was going to be an All Star, and they kept saying like, you know, he might start. He's definitely put up the numbers. He might be the starting pitcher. And wouldn't you know it? Of course, Cito Gaston was again the manager of the '94 <laughs> American League All Stars, and uh, it did not start Mike Messina, <laughs> even though he probably wow. deserved to start. Uh, he he went with Jimmy Key who was at the time a Yankee in 1994, but of course was a Blue Jays yeah. legend and had been under Cito Gaston for a number of years uh, for both World Series, or at least for the 92 World Series title, not 93, but um, but had, was and was a close personal friend of Cito's. And so he put Jimmy Key in over Mike Messina in 94 as well. And this game, of course, was like two weeks before that All-Star game. So it, it feels to me like it's one of those things where the broadcast kind of missed an opportunity to hype up a little bit of like tension between Cito and Messina because yeah. there probably was some that we weren't aware of, right? Definitely. And, like, you would the have fact that Messina got snubbed in '93 and then got snubbed again in '94 to not start the game uh, and instead like Cito's guy Jimmy Key getting the start instead. Uh, I it's it's beef that was just left there to rot, you know, and we could have had so, had that beef on the broadcast. The moral of the story is if anyone from Secret Base ever listens to this, we need <laughs> the Mike Musita Cito Gaston beef history episode. <laughs> yeah. We should just send them the uh yeah. send them this episode when it comes out. We need we need Cito Gaston Mike Musita beef. Maybe it wasn't enough. Maybe 
I don't I don't know if it was enough for a whole uh, secret base episode because it probably fizzled out quite a bit after that. But uh, just I just found it weird that they didn't really mention that mm-hmm. in in the in the broadcast. Maybe they weren't aware of it or they'd forgotten or maybe they were told not to. That feels like a regional thing that might not have translated, like something that Baltimore fans and, you know, Toronto fans would have been familiar with because of... I don't know, though, because it was a big deal in the 93 All-Star Yeah, I guess you're right, it was an All-Star game. And back then, All-Star games were a big deal back then, right? Like, they were big media events. Well, because that would have been been pre... um, Especially because it was uh, uh, pre-interleague play, too. And of course, we we would be remiss to not mention that if the, that this 90, 1994 season was the most cursed of all seasons. It never finished. The players' strike led to the cancellation of the World Series and the end of the season. Uh, the Montreal Expos probably never recovered. They were the best yeah. team in baseball at the time of the strike. When the strike hit, might have won the World Series. Well, and might not have. There were but... <laughs> there were so many storylines going on. You know, obviously the Expos, which I think is the biggest mm-hmm. one. Uh, we mentioned Tony Gwynn earlier, who was flirting with 400 this year. Um, and, like, everyone says this about everyone who came close to hitting 400. People say it about George Brett in 1980. People, you know, say it when Rod Carew hit, like, 387 um, back in the set. I think it was in the 70s he did that. Um, but anyone who is anyone in baseball that was around in 1994 has either gone to their grave or will go to their grave saying that Tony Gwynn would have hit 400 if the season would have finished that year. <laughs> and um, Matt Williams. Matt yep, Williams. They mentioned was, Matt Williams was, in the uh, broadcast. I was going to say they that did, too. Yeah. yeah. He was on pace to hit, I think 64 home runs when the, uh, when the uh, strike hit. So he never got to, well, to see and that I'd have to, to look if he would have, this... if he would have broken Roger Maris's record. Before yeah. Wire did. You never I'd know. have to look up the breakdown of it, but, um, Someone has done it where across one 162 games played from one point in 1994 through 1995, he actually did hit 62 home runs. Um, yeah. Just interesting tidbit. Uh, and we might talk more about Matt Williams later because he was actually oh, sure. on I... the 1997 uh, Cleveland team. Um, yeah. And and I'm sure we'll do another 94 game. Oh, yeah. Where we Definitely. can get into these themes more. Uh, but uh, And it wasn't really part of I think they mentioned the potential work stoppage once on the broadcast. They, like, they laughed, laughed it off. off. Yeah. They did. They were like, they're like, oh, barring a work stoppage. Baseball's <laughs> not going <laughs> to stop. Yeah, because it would have been, I think at that point, Cal Ripken would have uh, broken, broken the record for the most consecutive games played in a year from there in 1995. But... And that's when they brought it up. They're like, barring a work stoppage. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, like that's going to happen. That mm-hmm. would never happen. Right. Uh, and then, of course, it was not only a work stoppage, but probably the most infamous work stoppage in sports history. Yeah. <laughs> so like uh, kind of a big deal. Uh, yeah, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that yeah. in, in other other episodes. One of the things that we do want to do is in terms of more famous games, mm-hmm. um, we might do those like at anniversaries or something, you know, like. Uh, maybe the anniversary of David Wells' perfect game or something. We could we could do David Wells' perfect game. You know, the, we're not opposed to doing mega famous games uh, at times. Uh, just well, most of them are going to be just random games like this one. We could do uh, the, the uh, next one, the Len Bar- the Len Barker perfecto that all of maybe three thousand people were in attendance for. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. anyone and everyone in Cleveland Philip who's Humber. like my dad's age or older <laughs> claims they were at that game, even though it's literally yeah. impossible. <laughs> yeah, um, but the next game we're gonna do, we're not only gonna do Blue Jays and Cleveland games. Uh, we're just gonna do the first couple. Uh, I think I think the first three, right? Because we're doing this one. The next one we're gonna do is from May eighteenth, nineteen ninety nine, uh, between the White Sox and Cleveland in yes. Comiskey Park in Chicago, mm-hmm. and then uh, 
the third one we're going to do is going to be an 87 game between the Blue Jays and Cleveland. Uh, I think it was 88, but yeah, so that one will be fun because it was actually played in Old Muni Stadium in Cleveland, which does not exist anymore. Uh, so we'll kind of get a look at the old ballpark. I might wax poetic about, uh, my grandma and my dad and some of the stories I got from them, uh, about the old park and, you know, just how truly abysmal and bad Cleveland baseball was for about 30 years, uh, before they kind of got their stride back in the nineties. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, and then, and then like the 99 team that we're watching in the next episode is one of the greatest offensive teams of all time. And it's a, one a of, fun lineup, yeah. <laughs> a yeah. real fun lineup. Yes. Uh, um, Robbie Alomar in that, on that team as well, uh, yep. who, uh, was, and, and I, I was, he was not my favorite player like he was yours, but Robbie Alomar was a guy that I liked who I thought was very good, very fun to watch. And uh, lots of other fun players on that team and in that lineup as well. And so if you want to go watch it, if you want to watch it, by the way, beforehand, yes. we're going to put the link link in the show description so you can watch it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we'll hopefully, we we are recording a bunch of these probably in succession, but we're only going to release them once a week, so mm-hmm. we'll say next week. But yeah, and then, and then after we do those first three games, where our masturbate about our own fandom, <laughs> we, we'll move on from there and and uh, and and do other other teams for quite a while after that and before we return to one of our our favorites again I, unless you have anything else to say we can uh we can wrap it up and we'll see you next time yeah i don't think i got anything else here um is there anything that you want or need to plug i guess no, for as much really. of either of us have I mean, anything to plug <laughs> <laughs> i don't write about baseball anymore yeah. all of my public facing stuff is like communist activism things which you know if you're into that you can reach out to me um but I do have a Twitter, I guess. Um, we should probably set up uh, and have socials, yeah, we'll, which we haven't done yet. We'll, we'll, uh, we will we will set up a probably a podcast specific Twitter that we can be yeah. reached at if need be. You know what? Let's just say it. I haven't checked to see if they're available, but I'm assuming they are. Let's just say at Coax Baseball for all the things. Yeah. Um, if you that we'll do Instagram, Twitter. Um, at the very least, we'll we'll probably do. We have we'll have a Discord server. Maybe we'll post the Discord server link in the podcast show notes if you want to join that. Right now, it's just Scott and I. Uh, maybe <laughs> eventually it'll be a thing. Um, and we do have an email: coaxbaseball at proton If you want to email us and complain about our voices or the stupid things that we say, but we'll we'll have all that worked out a little more maybe next episode. Yeah, I, I forgot to do that um, this one. <laughs> and then uh, yeah, I guess the only other thing: um, if you need some baseball art in your life. Uh, you can mm. reach me at my uh, art Instagram account, uh, art underscore by underscore Scott underscore 92 at Instagram. Uh, I also have a website, www.scottbradyartist.com, uh, and we can have links for both of those potentially in the podcast uh, description if we need to. Um, I am no longer on Twitter uh, due to some, uh, <laughs> shall we say, mishaps during the work stoppage. Uh, and really, it's uh-huh. the best thing for my mental health. Frankly, uh, that place is sure, a hellhole. Sure. Um, sure, sure. But uh, I'm on I'm on Twitter at uh, at Travis underscore R underscore Laver L A V E R. I'm I'm on there. I occasionally tweet, usually about once a month or so. I used to be much more of a, of someone who's on Twitter, but I mostly just lurk now and follow baseball news. I don't really get into the bullshit. So yeah, but you feel free to come yell at me if you want. Who knows? Maybe if Twitter explodes in another month, uh, we'll be on Mastodon or something. All right, Scott. Well, thanks for doing this, and uh, yeah. We'll-